Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for March 2nd through 8th. Today we'll be covering 2 Nephi chapters 31 through 33. Again, this week I am filming not from my office in central Hong Kong on the 29th floor, but from my home outside of uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, I remain here as the coronavirus continues to uh, have people nervous in Hong Kong. Church will again be canceled uh, this week on March 1st, and also they've already notified us that next week on March 8th it will also be canceled. So because uh, of that and other reasons, I uh, am content to remain here uh, as long as my uh, employment allows me to do so. Uh, and obviously, coronavirus has been getting a lot of news and attention lately in the U.S. We'll we'll see how how things uh, pan out. Well, with this week's lesson, uh, we turn. We remain obviously. Nephi is still the teacher. Uh, but we see with the chapters covered this week, there's kind of a, a change in Nephi's approach. Uh, the last, you know, many chapters that we've been reading about, Nephi is, uh, last week's lesson in particular, it was focused on prophecies. Uh, the week before, we had uh, Isaiah chapters. The week before that, we had Jacob. And one of the themes that was running through all of our, our last few lessons was that Nephi was was speaking to uh, his seed, was speaking to his children. There was a lot of prophecies about what would take place and about the covenants uh, that they are uh, party to uh, because they are part of the house of Israel. Well, with the chapters that we get this week, we see kind of a shift in, in what Nephi is talking about. And it's not so much about um, you know, what house of Israel you're from, Jew or Gentile, what have you, but it's much more focused on uh, Jesus Christ and on his doctrines and his teachings. Um, and so we got some great chapters here. Uh, chapter 31 in particular, we'll be spending a lot of time in. We're going to actually read just about every single verse in that chapter because each one uh, has so much great content in it that is worth discussing and unpacking in order to make sure we, we understand what Nephi is talking about and, and glean some of the insights as to why Nephi would take the time to, to put all of this down. And certainly one of the remarkable things about these chapters is, is the details and the insights of uh, you know, Christological doctrine that Nephi had 600 years before Christ even came. Uh, it's truly incredible that Nephi uh, was so familiar with uh, what he calls the doctrine of Christ, uh, even though Christ had not yet come. Um, it, it seems like sometimes we think of the doctrine of Christ as something that's kind of, you know, evolving out of uh, Jesus Christ and his mission. But, uh, but Nephi shows us that, you know, 600 years before Christ was born, uh, people were already aware of, of Christ and the doctrine and, and the principles associated with it, with baptism and the Holy Ghost. Uh, very solid understanding displayed by, by Nephi here. Uh, so we have a lot to learn from him, even again, even though amazingly this is 600 years uh, before Christ even came. So with that, let, let, let's dive right in because uh, there's a lot to discuss here. And let's begin with uh, chapter 31, uh, verse 2. Wherefore the things which I have written sufficeth me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. Wherefore I shall speak unto you plainly, according to the plainness of my prophesying. So I want to talk a minute about what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of Christ. Uh, and before we do so, it's first uh, we need to understand what what doctrine is, um, and in order to do so. Uh, I like to use 
um, a, a framework that Elder Bednar <clears throat> gave in his book, Increase in Learning, which uh, as a Sunday school teacher is always something that I've found to be helpful, this framework, because we're taught that as we teach, uh, we should be focusing on teaching doctrines and principles. Uh, but I think sometimes we get so lost in the weeds of applications, as you'll see in this framework, that sometimes we're not as effective as we should be. But we should be teaching the doctrines and the principles of the gospel, not necessarily the applications. And here's what I mean by that. And see, when we talk about doctrines, we're talking about a, a truth of salvation revealed by a loving Heavenly Father. Uh, doctrines are eternal, and they do not change, and they pertain to the eternal progression and exaltation of Heavenly Father's sons and daughters. There's relatively few doctrine and numbers, and they answer the question of why. So doctrines are these high-level ideas, and there's not that many of them. And, and the focus of the doctrines is answer, answering the why questions. Okay, so that's what doctrines are, uh, according to this framework that Elder Bednar provides for us. And now, you could say below doctrines uh, are included uh, different principles. And when we're talking about principles, what we mean is doctrinally based guidelines for the righteous exercise of moral agency, subsets or components of broader gospel truths, doct uh, principles provide directions, and, based, and they are based upon and arised from doctrines. They do not change, and they answer the question of what. And an example of a principle that falls under the doctrine of the plan of salvation is obedience. So if you think of the doctrine of the plan of salvation, this plan that God gave us, put in place in order for us to progress and return to his presence... An essential principle within the plan of salvation is obedience, obedience to God. And you can think of other uh, principles as well. Certainly, uh, faith is a principle of the plan of, of uh, within the doctrine of the plan of salvation. And there's many others. But the idea is that there's this, you could think of it as a pyramid where there's very few doctrines at top. And then below those doctrines are uh, a larger number of principles. And they are to... Uh, answer the the what questions. And then below principles uh, in this framework, uh, we finally have applications. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, but as we're teaching, this should not be, applications should not be our focus. So Elder Bednar explained applications as being the actual behaviors, action steps, practices, or procedures by which gospel doctrines and principles are enacted in our lives appropriately can vary according to needs and circumstances, and they answer the question of how. And an example uh, within the framework that we're using now is the law of chastity. So under the principle of obedience... One example of obedience is obeying the law of chastity. And you could put any of the commandments as applications of the principle of obedience. Uh, but so the important thing to understand uh, for today's lessons purposes is that at the top you have doctrines and below doctrines you have principles and below principles you have applications. And the doctrines and the principles uh, are eternal, and they do not change. But the applications can change uh, depending on time and depending on circumstances. That's why sometimes we get uh, new commandments or uh, certain uh, applications across uh, different cultures or even within the church are, are sometimes different, whether they be you know, dress code for those passing the sacrament whether it be, you know, what day you observe the Sabbath day, uh, you know, in the Middle East, the stakes there, their Sabbath day is on, on Friday. Uh, in Hong Kong, there's a branch of uh, mostly domestic helpers that has sacrament meeting every day of the week except for Sunday. Um, and so even something that we think is so fundamental as Sabbath day observance and the concept of the Sabbath day is a correct principle that never changes, but the application of the Sabbath day, 
That is, what day of the week do you do it? What is permissible on the, on, on the Sabbath day? Those applications uh, can change, and we need the Holy Ghost to guide us uh, for how we should be applying those eternal doctrines and principles. So, with that framework in mind, we go back to the question that Nephi uh, puts forward in, uh, in this verse 2. Uh, not a question, but what he, what he states is the doctrine of Christ. So, what exactly is the doctrine of Christ? Well, using uh, this framework as doc- of doctrines being you know, high-level, relatively few uh, eternal truths, uh, I think I define the doctrine of Christ as being uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and makes it possible for us to return to live with our heavenly parents. That is the doctrine of Christ, that Christ is our Savior, and it is only through him that we can progress and return to live with our heavenly parents under the plan of salvation. That basic idea is the doctrine of Christ. Now, under the doctrine of Christ, there are a number of different principles, and that is what Nephi will be teaching us here today. We should be very aware of what these principles are, uh, because in our fourth article of faith, it tells us very clearly uh, where the fourth article of faith says, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, Third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. So those are the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Those are the principles that go beneath this doctrine of Christ. So again, the doctrine of Christ is that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and it is only through him we can return to the presence of our heavenly parents And under that doctrine is the principles of faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we'll see Nephi adds one here, uh, endure to the end. And these are the principles that are encapsulated within the doctrine of Christ. And so we'll see that's what Nephi explains to us here as we go through these chapters. And he does so absolutely beautifully. Uh, So let's turn now to verse 5 in chapter 31. And now, if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, oh then, how much more need we, need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? We learn here that Christ fulfills all righteousness. Uh, when he is baptized, which is an interesting concept because we think of Christ as being perfectly righteous. Uh, And so the idea that he would have to take some additional proactive step in order to fulfill all righteousness at first can seem a little bit counterintuitive. But we see that this idea of fulfilling all righteousness uh, is actually used in This exact phrase is used in Matthew 3.15 when we have Matthew's record of Christ coming to John the Baptist and receiving the ordinance of baptism from him. Uh, This idea that Christ fulfills all righteousness. And if nothing else, this tells us, as Nephi says here, the importance for us that we have to be baptized. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie, in his... Uh, really incredible work, Mormon doctrine. It's it's really come out of uh, out of vogue, certainly within the past decade or so, because uh, some of the original versions, especially, had some unfortunate comments about race in them. But it's a very thick book, and so much of it is so useful. And, and within there, he he made the comment. He said, "If even the king of the kingdom could not return to his high state of pre-existent exaltation." Without complying with his own eternal law for admission to that kingdom, how can any man expect a celestial inheritance without an authorized and approved baptism? So again, it's this idea that Christ fulfilled all righteousness by being baptized. And if this act was necessary for Christ to fulfill all righteousness, well, goodness, how much more important is it for us? Even the king of the kingdom can't return to his 
uh, pre-existent exaltation, what a beautiful phrase, uh, without first receiving this uh, essential ordinance, then certainly uh, we have to as well. Now, the question should be, why was it necessary? Why did Christ, even though he was perfect, even though he was without sin, why in order, to, in order for him to fulfill all righteousness, did he have to be baptized? Well, let's keep going. Verses 6 and 7. And now I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness and being baptized by water? That's our exact question. Nephi says, Know ye not that he was holy? But notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. So when Christ is baptized, he covenants with the Father, just like we covenant when we're baptized. He receives an ordinance, and with that ordinance comes the covenant, and his covenant is that he will keep the commandments. And we, of course, know that he did that. He kept all of the commandments, and he did so perfectly. Christ fulfilled all righteousness when he fulfilled his part of his covenant with Heavenly Father. So, why, so what did he promise to do? He witnessed unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Now, so Christ did everything perfectly. Christ kept all of the commandments and he fulfilled his part of the covenant when he was baptized. Okay, so it's important to keep all this in mind. Now let's turn to verses 8 and 10. Wherefore, after he was baptized with water, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. And again, it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. And he said unto the children of men, Follow thou me. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus, save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? Okay, so Christ kept all of the commandments, and by doing so, uh, great, verse, great terminology here, he showed to us the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate that we have to go to in order to return to the Father. Now, as it's been set up so far, you and I are kind of in trouble because Christ was baptized and entered into a covenant with God. And his covenant that he was that he would keep all the commandments, according to verse 7. And we know he did keep all of the commandments. He was perfect. He was without sin. He kept all of the commandments. And so he kept his part of the covenant. And now, by doing so, he showed us what a fine line it is, how straight... Uh, sorry, I want to make sure I get... The straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate in order to return to the Father's presence. That's a very straight path and a very narrow gate if we have to keep all of the commandments. But that's the example that Christ set for us. And then in verse 10, it asks the question, so Christ says, come follow me, you know, come with me. And we're like, yeah, okay, we're doing the best we can, but Christ, you kept all the commandments. I, I can't do that. And then so Nephi ends verse 10 by saying, can we follow Jesus, save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? So Christ kept all the commandments, setting this perfect example for us. And our job is to follow Christ and keep all of the commandments. Well, of course, we know that if that is the requirement for us, we're going to be in big trouble because it's impossible for us to keep all of the commandments. So what do we do? Well, let's keep going. Let's read verses 11 and 12. And the father said, repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved son. And also the voice of the son came unto me saying, he that is baptized in my name, to him will the father give the Holy Ghost like unto me. Wherefore, follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. All right, here we finally get a little bit of relief. Christ set the perfect example for us 
by doing what he covenanted with God that he would do when he was baptized by keeping all of the commandments. And so if we're truly going to follow Christ and do what Christ did, we have to keep all the commandments, okay? But we know that that's not possible. That's not the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation obviously is not for us to come here and keep all the commandments. What is the plan of salvation? It, It says in verse 11, and this is the Father speaking. This is God the Father talking to us. And his call to us is not, Yeah, do like Christ and keep all the commandments. No, his call is what? Repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. God the Father knows that we're not going to be able to keep all the commandments. So that's not what he expects us to do. What he expects us to do is when we don't keep the commandments, we repent. That we change that we do the best we can, and that when we fall down, we get back up again, and that we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is what God the Father expects us to do in verse 11. And then in verse 12, Christ uh, encourages us even further, and he says, yeah, you don't have to keep all the commandments in order to receive the Holy Ghost. Christ did that. That's what it tells us in, in verse 8. That after he was baptized, he covenanted to keep all the commandments. After he was baptized, he received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And because he continued to keep all the commandments, the Holy Ghost remained with him throughout his entire mortal journey. With the small exception as to when the Spirit withdrew itself on the cross, I believe, so that Christ could experience what it felt for us to not have the Holy Ghost with us. But other than that, Christ kept all the commandments and he always had the companionship of the Holy Ghost with him. But Christ tells us in verse 12, you don't have to keep all the commandments in order to get the Holy Ghost with you. I did that. But I've set different terms for you. My terms is not perfection. As long as you are baptized in my name... This is verse 12. To him will the Father give the Holy Ghost like unto me. So you don't have to keep the commandments. Just be baptized in my name. Now, obviously, it's a little more than just being baptized because we know with baptism comes a certain covenant, the baptismal covenant. And as long as we keep that baptismal covenant, one that we renew every week as we partake of the sacrament, And if you think about the words of the sacramental prayer, it says exactly what we have to do in order to receive the Holy Ghost. We have to always remember him, be willing to take upon him, take upon us the name of Christ, and keep the commandments. And if we do those things, And if we repent when we make mistakes, what's the Father's promise? That we will have the Holy Ghost to be with us. So we don't have to be perfect as Christ was perfect. We just have to be baptized and keep our baptismal covenant. And then we get the incredible blessing of having the Holy Ghost with us. Now, of course, we learned a few weeks ago that the the Spirit does not always strive with man. We're not always going to have the Spirit with us. But as long as we're keeping our parts of the covenants, as long as we are doing our part to keep the commandments, when we are worthy of it, the Spirit will be with us and will guide us. Let's continue in uh, in verse 13 then. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water according to his word. Behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. So here in verse 13, it kind of reiterates what we have just been talking about. We don't have to be perfect because it's impossible. And Christ did that for us. So our job is not perfection. What is our job? If we look carefully at verse 13, it says we must act with full purpose of heart. And we must act with real intent. 
That is no hypocrisy and no deception. We must repent of our sins and we must witness that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And if we do those things, the promise is that we will receive the Holy Ghost. And then with the Holy Ghost comes the completion of our baptism. It is the baptism of of fire that comes through the Holy Ghost. And after we've done that, then we can speak with the tongue of angels. And we'll talk in uh, the next chapter about what exactly that means to speak in the tongue of angels. But, but, but those are the things that we have to do in order uh, to fulfill our part of the baptismal covenant. Christ's baptismal covenant was to be perfect. Our baptismal covenant is not to be perfect, but it's to, again, with full purpose of heart, acting with real intent, repent of our sins and witness that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. Not surprisingly, this verse 13 sounds a lot like the, the sacramental prayer that we, just, uh, that we just reviewed. And that's because those are the things that we covenant, that we promise to do when we are baptized. We give our hearts to Christ. We give our will to Christ with full purpose of heart, with real intent. We do the best that we can do. And we do it intentionally, not without hypocrisy. We're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. We're not trying to take advantage of anyone. We're truly humbling ourselves, recognizing our dependence upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Recognizing that he was perfect, but we are not. And we cannot receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which prepares us and leads us back to the Father, unless we rely upon Jesus Christ and his merits. He received the gift of the Holy Ghost because he was perfect. We don't have to be perfect. We simply have to uphold our end of the bargain uh, that we've entered into with Christ at the time we are baptized, which is repenting of our sins sincerely and doing the best that we can. So with these, uh, sorry, uh, let me quickly read one quote then. Uh, And again, this is uh, Elder McConkie, uh, still in Mormon doctrine. And uh, he says, in talking about the baptism of the Spirit, uh, or receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, he says, The baptism of the Spirit is called the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. By the power of the Holy Ghost, who is the sanctifier. Dros iniquity, carnality, sensuality, and every evil thing is burned out of the repentant soul as if by fire. The cleansed person becomes literally a new creature of the Holy Ghost. He is born again. So that is the effect that the Holy Ghost has on our lives when we receive it. That's why it is required for us to receive the Holy Ghost in order for us to be prepared to return to the Father's presence. Because, again, I I was watching a uh, a lecture this week by Terrell Givens that he gave, and he made the, uh, the interesting observation that heaven is not something that is earned, but it is a condition that we have Uh, that we qualify for. So it's not like we check all the lists on, uh, check all the boxes on a list. And if we've checked all those boxes, we're able to return to heaven. The question is, what type of person are we? What have we become? And it is the Holy Ghost that is the, this vehicle that this cleansing instrument that takes us as we are and molds us over time and, and, gets rid of our imperfections and our impurities, just as as fire is capable of doing. That's why it's the baptism of fire. Takes us and makes us better, makes us into a better person, makes us into a woman or a man who is able to endure the presence of the Father. That is why it is so essential for us to receive the Holy Ghost. And that is why Christ's sacrifice and atonement is so important because it makes it possible for us to receive the Holy Ghost, even though we haven't kept all of the commandments. And then, as Elder McConkie says, once we do that, as we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it changes us and we are born again. And so, with all of these pieces in place, I think now we're able to put them together and understand how it is that Christ's baptism 
why Christ had to be baptized and how it is that he makes it possible for us to return to the Father, starting from his baptism. To do so, I think we, we first understand that when it comes to physical death, I think we un- generally understand pretty well this idea that Christ, he suffered physical death and then he was resurrected. And through his resurrection, he unlocked the gates. He burst, uh, he, he bro- broke the chains. He burst the chains of physical death. death. And as, as Paul said in Corinthians, he became the first fruits of them that slept. So we're comfortable with this idea that when it comes to physical death, Christ suffered death and then he was resurrected. And even though he suffered physical death, he destroyed physical death uh, through his resurrection, making it possible for us to return to live with the Father. And now there's an important parallel here with the other death, with spiritual death. So in order for Christ, Christ also broke the bands of spiritual death. And that is a process that started with baptism. So just as it was essential for Christ to be resurrected, and in the process baking, breaking the bands of spiritual death so that we all, sorry, breaking the bands of physical death so that we all could be resurrected, so too it was essential for Christ to be baptized so that he could break the bands of spiritual death, making it possible for all of us to overcome spiritual death. And so we see uh, Christ's baptism, which started the process of him breaking that spiritual death, was absolutely uh, essential because uh, for him to be baptized first, because in the same way it was required for him to be resurrected first. He had to be resurrected so that we could be resurrected. He had to be baptized so that we could be baptized and that our baptisms would have efficacy, so that our baptisms would actually lead to the result of us bursting the bands of that spiritual death. Because after all, baptism symbolizes a death, a burial, and then a resurrection. And then after that resurrection, we come forth in a new life. We come forth as new creatures, having been born again in Jesus Christ. And so, and of course, the Holy Ghost is necessary, as Elder McConkie taught, for us to truly be born again. And and so Christ makes it possible for us to be born again in him because he was first baptized, because he entered into a covenant with the Father. And pursuant to that covenant, he received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then he therefore lays the path and makes it possible, not requiring us to be perfect, but simply requiring us to repent of our sins, to turn unto him with full purpose of heart, knowing that if we do so, we too will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We too will be born again. We too will begin this process that Christ initiated of making it possible for us to return to live with our Father in heaven. And so uh, we can receive those same blessings of overcoming spiritual death, of being born again into this new life as we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and as we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And through this, we become one with Christ. And this is the critical part. This is the part where it comes to helping us understand the atonement. Christ enters into a covenant with God the Father, and he keeps his part of the covenant. And by so doing, by being perfectly obedient to God, they are one. And then enters the Holy Ghost, and they, he adds his seal, his testimony, and the three of them together become one, one Godhead and atonement. Now, we, in our natural and fallen state, are incapable of becoming one with those three by ourselves. But we instead enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ. And as we keep our part of that covenant, as we repent of our sins with full purpose of heart, as we come unto Christ, 
and fulfill our part of the covenant, we become one with him. And then Christ here, as Nephi teaches promises, we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, further solidifying that oneness, that one meant. And because Christ, this is where, if you remember back to middle school math, the transient uh, property, the transitive property, sorry, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If Christ is one with God and we are one with Christ, then through this transitive property of the atonement, we become one with the Father. We are able to return to the Father. We are able to enjoy his presence forever. And we are able to slowly work out our exaltation, improving, progressing day by day over eons to become like our heavenly parents all made possible through our atonement with Jesus Christ, through us becoming one with Christ. And without that process of onement with Christ, which happens as we again covenant, enter into covenants with him, which we do through the sacred, beginning with the sacred ordinance of baptism. And as we repent and keep our part of <clears throat> that covenant, we become one with Christ, and because Christ is one with the Father, we become one with God. That is how, uh, in part, uh, an essential part of how the atonement works. And it begins with this process of baptism. And baptism is an effective covenant with Christ because Christ was baptized and because he lived up to his part of the covenant. Uh, verses 15 and 16 in verse 31. And I heard a voice from the Father saying, Yea, the words of my beloved Son are true and faithful. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And now, my beloved brethren, I know by this, that unless a man shall endure to the end, and following the example of the Son of the living God, he cannot be saved. So let's quickly talk here about what enduring to the end means. With the context of what we just explained, enduring to the end does not mean this long, drudgerous process of marching up this painful hill. Hopefully, at some point, we'll eventually have these burdens released from us. No, enduring to the end means that our expression, our relationship with Jesus Christ continues forever. We enter into an enduring relationship with Christ an eternal relationship with him, a forever covenant with Christ. And pursuant to that covenant, we progress and we improve, made possible through Jesus Christ. And it's, and I'll note it's interesting here, uh, I don't know what to take of this, that in verse 15, we have the Father talking, and he gives it as a positive. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. As long as we have that long, enduring relationship with Jesus Christ, we will be saved. But in verse 16, Nephi kind of flips it and puts it in the negative. Unless you endure to the end, you cannot be saved. Which I think is, both of which are important concepts. The promise, if we endure to the end, if we have that enduring relationship with Christ, we will be saved. And then the flip is, unless you enter into that type of eternal covenant with Christ, you have no hope of being saved. You cannot save yourself. You cannot covenant with the Father that you will keep all of the commandments. All we can covenant is that we will covenant with Christ that when we make mistakes, we will repent and we will give our whole hearts to him. That is, as Nephi said a few chapters ago, that is all that we can do is turning unto Christ. Verse uh, 17 and 18. Wherefore do the things which I have told you I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For, for this cause have they been shown unto me, that ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And then are ye on this straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate, ye have done according to the commandments of the Father and the Son, and ye have received the Holy Ghost, which witnesseth of the Father and the Son." unto the fulfilling of the promise which he hath made that if ye endured if that if ye entered in by the way ye should receive 
I think verses 17 through 18 here are a beautiful summary of what we just talked about. Uh, we're supposed, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to enter into by the gate of baptism by water, uh, preceded by repentance. And then once we've done that comes a remission of sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost, which cleanses us and purifies us and makes us into the type of uh, new creatures that is necessary in, in order for us to return to the presence of the Father. Uh, and uh, once we have done that, after we have entered into this gate of baptism, um, we, uh, we continue and we progress and we endure to the end. And that's what 17 and 18 are talking about. And that's, again, a summary of what you and I just discussed. Okay. Uh, and then so from there, we turn uh, to verses 19 and 20. And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, nay, for ye have not come this far, save it were by, wor- by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. So here, interestingly, uh, is several words, uh, several ideas to point here. here. Here we have this idea of the word of Christ. In verse uh, 19, For we have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him. Uh, now we'll see in just a little bit, one concept of the word of Christ that Nephi is talking about, this idea that it's what comes from the tongue of angels. But here as we think about the word of Christ, I like to think, remember the primary game that uh, that we learn, you may have learned about when you're in primary where one person stands blindfolded and there's one, and there's another person whose voice they are to listen to. And that person will tell them to go forward, to turn left, to turn right, to go backwards, to stop, etc. Uh, and that one person is who they are to listen to in order to get to their destination. And then of course the rest of the kids in the class are there trying to distract and provide uh, false directions. But it's that one person that you're supposed to listen to, to their words, having faith in their words that are to lead and to guide you. And that is the word of Christ that we're talking about here. We're supposed to constantly remain in tune with Christ's words as he communicates to us through the Holy Ghost, teaching us, leading us, guiding us back to the Father. That is what we are to latch on to, and we are to hold steadfast onto that. Always be listening for Christ and for his words, having faith that he will lead us back to the presence of the Father. And then I, I love in verse 20, you know, famous verse, press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. Again, always holding closely, listening intently to the word of Christ as it leads and guide us, having a perfect brightness of hope. I love perfect brightness of hope. And as I, in my mind, as I distinguish between faith and hope, I like to think that uh, faith, pretend you're on a journey and you have a map to guide you on that journey. And faith is believing in the map and hope is believing in the destination. So Christ and the inclinations of the spirit that lead us and guide us and provide us directions and tell us when we're doing something wrong and encourage us to repent, uh, give us inspiration as needed so that we can be safe and to buoy our faith and all of these wonderful promptings of the spirit that we listen to in faith. That's our map and that's what leads and guides us. But where are they leading us to? We have hope in the celestial kingdom. We have hope that this destination is actually there. And if we follow the map that they're providing to us, if we follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost, if we read our scriptures and do what the scriptures tell us to, if we follow the example of Christ in the way that we love others and we love God, we have hope that they will eventually lead us back to the presence of the Father. A perfect brightness of hope. 
And if we continue these things, feasting upon the word of Christ, as we talked about listening intently, doing everything that Christ tells us to, feasting upon it, and endure to the end, maintain that relationship with Christ forever, that enduring relationship. Behold, thus saith the Father, so this is a promise of God the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And there is no more beautiful promise that God could ever give to us. Ye shall never die. You will never stop progressing. You will have eternal life. You will return to the Father's presence and there enjoy with him the type of life that he enjoys, having become like him, having fulfilled all righteousness by being baptized in the name of Christ, being willing to take upon you the name of Christ, repenting when we don't keep the commandments, eternally progressing, becoming better each day, all made possible through the merits of him who is mighty to save, as it says at the end of 19, even Jesus Christ. And then we end this chapter with verse 21. It goes back to where we started, the doctrine of Christ. And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. And the only true doctrine of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. Again, the doctrine of Christ, as Nephi says it is, there is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. The doctrine of Christ is simply that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And if we have faith in him, and we enter into covenants with him, which we do at baptism, and if we keep those covenants, repenting when we make mistakes, entering into enduring eternal relationship with him, Christ will lead us back to the Father and we shall have eternal life. So I love chapter 31. So much in here, so much incredible doctrine teaching us so plainly as Nephi is wont to do, teaching us so plainly the doctrine of Christ and the importance of Jesus Christ and making it possible for us to return to live with him. Turn quickly to chapter thir- chapters 32 and 33. And 32 verses 2 through 3. Do ye not remember that I said unto you that after ye had received the Holy Ghost, ye could speak with the tongue of angels? And now could ye speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. These are two interesting verses because in verse 1, which we didn't read, it's basically Nephi is presenting the question of, okay, you're asking me what should we do after we've been baptized? And his answer is, oh, you start speaking with the tongue of angels. That's what you should do. What is that? What is the tongue of angels? You're speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost. So after we are baptized, what is it that we do in order to continue to progress? Well, of course, we have to keep the commandments. But it says here that what else should we do? We should teach others the commandments. And we should enjoy receiving the teaching, the teaching of other people. So we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which allows us to speak uh, the to speak the words of Christ, uh, and again, because it says angels speak by the words of Christ, and he says that uh, you, after we've been baptized, we can speak the tongue of angels. So you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, you can speak the tongue of angels, and angels speak the words of Christ, and so and we are to feast upon the words of Christ because they tell you all things what you should do. So we just talked about. Remember the primary game in which you listen to the one person who's telling you what to do. So after you're baptized, what is it? What are the things that we're supposed to do? You're supposed to help others. You're supposed to be standing by them while they are blindfolded. And you're supposed to say, go forward to your left, to your right. Okay, good. You're there. You're supposed to encourage and you're supposed to help other people to come unto Christ. You're supposed to by the power of the Holy Ghost, speak with the tongue of angels, speak the words of Christ, leading and guiding others. And then we're supposed to feast upon the words of Christ, 
which again are coming by these angels who have been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're supposed to be teaching each other. We're supposed to be helping each other. We're supposed to be encouraging each other. That is an essential element of how we continue to improve and how we continue to progress. And so you might, sometimes you might feel frustrated with your ward or with your branch because, you know, you know these, these people, maybe they're not as smart as you. Maybe they're not very good teachers. Maybe they're not very good speakers. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what Nephi tells us is our obligation. This is what we do with each other. We teach each other. We encourage each other. We speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, the words of Christ, because we speak with the tongue of angels once we've been baptized. So we're supposed to love and encourage and teach and support each other. Each other. We're supposed to study the gospel ourselves and understand it so that we're in a position to help other people to continue to improve and progress. Uh, verse 9. But behold, I say unto you that ye must pray always and not faint, that ye must not perform anything unto the Lord, save in the first place ye shall pray unto the Father in the name of Christ, that he will consecrate thy performance unto thee, that thy performance may be for the welfare of thy soul. And so in chapter, in verse 9 here, uh, Christ teaches, or sorry, Nephi teaches us that uh, it is possible to do things unto the Lord because that's what the context of what we're talking about, right? Verse 9, you must not perform anything unto the Lord, save in the first place you shall pray. It's possible to do things unto the Lord that end up not being for the welfare of our soul. And according to Nephi, the difference is that we have prayed about it. Now, why does that make such a big difference? Let's turn to the Bible dictionary for the definition of prayer, where there's great insight here, in which it says, As soon as we learn the true relationship in which we stand toward God, namely God is our Father and we are his children, then at once prayer becomes natural and instinctive on our part. Many of the so-called difficulties about prayer arise from forgetting this relationship, Prayer is the act by which the will of the father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant, but that are made conditional on our asking for them. Blessings require some work or effort on our part before we can obtain them. Prayer is a form of work and is appointed means for obtaining the highest of all blessings. Continuing, we pray in Christ's name when our mind is the mind of Christ and our wishes the wishes of Christ, when his words abide in us. We then ask for things it is possible for God to grant. Many prayers remain unanswered because they are not in Christ's name at all. They in no way represent his mind, but spring out of the selfishness of man's heart. So here I think it beautifully uh, describes for us what the purpose of prayer is. And this is something that is so easy for us to forget as it becomes, you know, so ritual and so routine for us. The purpose of prayer is, it says here, the prayer is the act by which the will of the father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. So prayer is where we get on our knees and we say, Heavenly Father, this is what I want. I've thought about it. I've, I've really thought hard about it. And this is what makes sense to me. And then we express those ideas to God. And if we do so with the Holy Ghost, we will either, one or two things will happen. We will either receive that confirmation from God that what we want is good. And then we move forward. Or... We will have that stupor of thought and we will not receive that confirmation. And then we will know, hmm, maybe what I want isn't exactly what the Lord wants. Maybe I need to change. And then either the Lord will, through the Holy Ghost, communicate with you what changes are necessary. Or we are to get up and think about what changes might be necessary. To continue to study, continue to make adjustments, can, trying to bring our will in correspondence with God's. And this concept 
is something that the world, especially those that aren't religious, don't understand. They think that praying is like sitting on Santa Claus's lap and telling God what you want. But they've got it completely backwards. The purpose of prayer is not for us to tell God what we want. It's to give God a chance to confirm with us what he wants. Actually give us the chance to confirm with God what he wants, I should say. So the the purpose of prayer is to bring our will with God's will into alignment. And as that happens, we re, as these two wills become one. And you have an atonement. As we become one with God in will and purpose. And so when Nephi says here that if we undertake things unto the Lord without praying about them, without making sure that what we're doing is the will of the Lord, without going through that process of humbly coming before him and having our wills confirmed and in some cases turned and changed in order to conform with his, then of course it won't be for the welfare of our soul. Because we'll be doing, as it says in the Bible dictionary, they in no way represent his mind, but spring out of the selfishness of man's hearts. It, it's what our will is. And our will is not necessarily what the Lord's will is. I'm sure we can all think of many examples in our lives in which we thought one way in which things would happen. But over time, as we prayed about it and as things unfolded, we'd see God's way is completely different from ours. And I would imagine in every instance, God's way is always superior to ours as well. But, you know, for Nephi's purposes here, he says, if you're going to do anything unto the Lord, pray about it. Make sure that your will is aligned with God's will. Then it will be for the welfare of your soul. Then it will lead you to God and will help you to progress and to become more like him. And a few verses from chapter 33 as we conclude here. Uh, Verse 1. And now I, Nephi, cannot write all the things which were taught among my people, neither am I mighty in writing like unto speaking. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men. And so this is what Nephi was talking about as we were speaking of, uh, speaking with the tongue of angels and speaking the words of Christ, which are what we should feast upon. He says, you know, I'm, I'm not mighty in writing. I, I prefer speaking because when a man speaks by the power of the Holy Ghost, Again, when you're speaking the words uh, with the tongue of angels, you're speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, you're speaking and teaching the doctrine of Christ, the Holy Ghost, uh, the power of the Holy Ghost carries it unto the hearts of the children of men, and they're able to receive it, to receive that testimony. Of course, Nephi is, <clears throat> Joseph Smith, as, as he was inspired to translate, notice it doesn't say it carries it into the hearts, it carries it unto the hearts of the children of men. Whether or not it actually gets into their hearts depends upon the listener opening his heart, opening his mind in order to receive the words of Christ as taught by the power of the Holy Ghost here. And then finally, verse 9. I also have charity for the Gentiles, but behold, for none of these can I hope except they shall be reconciled unto Christ and enter into the narrow gate and walk in the straight path which leads to life and continue in the path until the end of the day of probation. I think this is a perfect uh, verse to conclude our lesson with. We have no hope of being saved. We have no hope of returning to the presence of the Father unless we are, and Nephi uses the word here, reconciled unto Christ. Reconciled is a beautiful word. There's two individuals and a gap is between them. That gap must be closed. We close that gap. We are reconciled to Christ as we, as we've talked about today, enter into covenants with him through the ordinances of baptism as we repent of our sins, as we make them, as we, with full purpose of heart, do everything that we can to bring our will in line with God's will, to understand his will, and then to carry out that will. And as we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and we allow the Holy Ghost, this baptism of fire, to change us, to mold us, to take us and make us better than we ever could become 
by ourselves. And it is only through this process that we can exercise the doctrine of Christ or that the doctrine of Christ has efficacy of us, that Christ saves us, that Christ brings us back to the presence of the Father through this beautiful transitive process of atonement in which we become one with Christ and then it because we have been reconciled and are one with Christ, because Christ is one with the Father, we, through Christ, through his merits, through his grace and his mercy, return to the presence of the Father. As he says in verse 9, it is a narrow gate and it is a straight path which leads us to this life. And we are continued to this, Nephi says, uh, until the end of the day of probation, until the day in which we have become like God, until this beautiful day in which we, I'm not going to say no longer need Christ, but in which we have used our faith in Christ, used his merits, used his mercy, used his power, and have returned to the presence of the Father. That is the doctrine of Christ, that we are saved through our Redeemer. He redeems us, he saves us, he brings us back into the presence of God through his grace and through his mercy, that we can only tap as we enter into the sacred ordinance of uh, baptism and enter into those covenants that come with that ordinance as we repent of our sins, do our best to keep the commandments, and let the Holy Ghost mold us and change us and to become the best that we can so that we can endure the presence of the Father. And I hope that we will all make efforts to do so, that we will all take seriously the covenants that we have made with Christ, knowing that that is the only way in which we can be saved. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.